So this evening I, I would like to follow up a talk that I gave a few weeks ago about my, the teachings of my teacher Ajahn Chah. Um, and part of the um, motivation for this evening's talk is a conference that I went to on Friday um, in San Francisco, which was for the Religion uh, Writers of America. Um, so it was the New York Times religion correspondent and the guy who does the religion page and columns for the Chronicle or for Newsweek magazine. Now, there was even a religion writer from Teen People there <laughs> writing, interested in Buddhism because of the Beastie Boys and Nirvana and other such kind of rock Buddhists. Um, <laughs> And so they, they wanted a bit of a presentation on American Buddhism and what, how American Buddhism might be looking these days as opposed to what you might find in a temple in Thailand or Korea or Sri Lanka or someplace in Asia. So that we had some conversation about that. And then there were questions. And at the end, um, one of the reporters raised his hand and he said, well, you know, I hear from you and a couple of the other teachers, Blanche Hartman, who is the abbess of the San Francisco Zen Center, was there and some others. I hear about the growing interest in Buddhist practice and, you know, these many, many centers developed and so forth. But how many of these people would the teachers um, in the traditional Buddhist countries look at and say, these are real practitioners, and how many of them are, are nightstand Buddhists? I said, nightstand Buddhists? He said, yeah, you know, the ones who have a little, you know, book of Tibetan aphorisms by the bed that they read at night, and that's about as far as they go. And I said, well, I, I know a lot of nightstand Christians and Jews as well. I'm sure there are plenty in every <laughs> uh, persuasion. Um, but he followed up, he said, really, how, how many people do you think take this in a sincere way? And I said, of course, it's so hard to know, but one simple answer that I have is that a number of friends who have practiced meditation and the practices of compassion and awareness over the years, um, before... Huh. Okay. I'll do it. Um, take out in just a moment. Um, so uh, he asked, uh, how many really take it seriously? I said, you know, I've been working with a number of people in recent years uh, as part of our community um, when they've died or when friends who are very close to them have died. And I would say that the practices and teachings that they really use and take to heart um, uh, show themselves at the time that they prepare for and go through the process of dying. And to me, that's one of the most um, genuine statements of uh, some inner um, understanding of Dharma that I, c that I can imagine. The note that I just got, by the way, is that um, uh, is a favor. The person who owns the Chevrolet, burgundy and black Chevrolet 4x4, um, which is parked behind another car, the person whose car is parked in turns out has to get back to her children. She didn't realize this. She has some young kids. So if you have that car <laughs> and would be kind enough, she realized she had children, but she didn't realize that she had to get back to them. 
if you have that car, please be kind enough to uh, assist her to return. That person then followed up with another question, the uh, nightstand uh, um, reporter, and he said, well, do, do, these, do these people even know the teachings? I mean, do they read the Buddhist texts, or do they just read these kind of popular Buddhist stories or whatever? Um, and I said, well, you know, again, it's, it's mixed, but most of the people that I know who have done some retreat practice and some, or some years of meditation um, have a pretty good understanding of the foundations of mindfulness and of the principles of compassion and the ethical practices and other such things that are really at the core of Buddhist uh, trainings. So I began to reflect about this and then started to think about speaking tonight. And um, really I wanted to talk about the kind of initiation or <coughs> training that one receives in a monastery in Asia as, and as it really reflects on the practices that we can do here. And part of it has to do with what will bring an inner transformation or what allows us to discover um, a kind of inner spiritual authority or knowing um, for ourselves. It happens this week also as we're sitting here that the retreat that's going on in the new retreat center is our annual retreat for people of color. And so there's about 50 folks there who are um, Latino or African-American, Asian-American, Native American. Um, and one of my good friends who's helping to teach it is Ralph Steele, who's an African-American Dharma teacher from New Mexico, just got back from spending a year as a monk in Burma and Thailand. He said that the the masters or the elders that he spent time with over in Asia reminded him very much of the elders of the community where he grew up in South Carolina, this um, black community on Pauly's Island where they spoke uh, not English but Gullah, which is a mixture of some West African languages and a little French and, and uh, English. And he talked to me about his first teacher, who was his uh, grandmother that he called, the people in the community called Sister Mary, who was one of the elders in their church. And he said, um, he said, I really learned about what the kind of dignity and spiritual authority a person could carry from her. And now I went to Burma and I saw it in my teachers there. He said, I remember when I was a, when I was a young boy and I was just six or seven years old, my brother and I would, would play out in the front yard of Sister Mary's house, and the um, chain gangs would come along the road with their bush axes to clear the brush along the sides of the road, and these would be guys shackled in chains who were prisoners, um, and it was, of course, quite segregated in the South, not to speak of quite racist in general in the country, um, and he said, so there would be all these guys coming along, and uh, with them was the sheriff with his shotgun, you know, kind of overseeing this. And my brother and I, we'd hide behind the bushes and watch them. They would come, you know, there was a certain time every few weeks or whatever. And he said, then Sister Mary would come out of the house, and she would bring a big, great big pitcher of um, lemonade she'd made up with a cup tied to it, 
and a, a plate of uh, fresh cornbread or some kind of sweets that she'd made up. And she sa he said, I watched her and she went out in the road and the sheriff indicated she wanted come to come near these men. And she just looked at him and smiled and kept walking, walked right up to him um, and the rest of them. And he took his shotgun, which was kind of folded over his arm and cocked it so that it was, you know, ready to use. She just walked right by him, walked up to the men, gave a drink to each man, gave them each something to eat, walked back past the sheriff and offered some to him. He didn't take it, and as Ralph said, he missed the darshan from the saint, right? Um, and then she walked back in the house. Darshan is the, the uh, Hindu word for meeting with a saint. Um, he said, in this quality of dignity and of faith and of a kind of spiritual authority was what I saw in the elders that I met in the forests of Thailand and the monasteries of Burma. And, um, I see it, Ralph and I work together with Maladoma Somay, who's a West African medicine man doing work with young men in the inner cities. And he talks about his elders in the African villages and what a, what a kind of authority they carry no matter what anybody says. Their understanding of the world and their trust of the um, inner knowing. Or a good friend of mine, Ani Tenzin Palmo, who's an English woman, um, that's spoken here in previous years who spent, uh, she's been a nun for 20 years, and she spent 12 years living in a cave on the border of Tibet and Nepal, um, just doing her simple Tibetan practice for 12 years in her cave. And she came out and she teaches in the most simple and elementary way. She doesn't do all the kind of high tantric visualizations, you know, all those kind of elaborate Tibetan practices. Her teachings are compassion. Her teachings are presence. They're being... Um, human and awakening to that sacred quality that is here um, in any moment when we can see it. So to discover this kind of inner authority to awake in spiritual life involves for each of us a shift of identity, a rebirth of spirit, if you will, or a discovery of that Buddha nature, that inherent dignity and compassion and greatness of heart that is possible for every human being. It's finding our own true connection to the sacred. And when we sit, all of us, these people who come together with you on Monday night, um, and don't do anything for 40 minutes, it's a kind of amazing thing that we've stopped um, doing business, right? And, and sending faxes and responding to our email and um, taking care of our family and our parents and our children. And my daughter, who's 16, a couple of days ago got her driver's license today. So um, as soon as she got home, she took the car. She said, I'll see you, Dad. She drives and I pray now. This is kind of... A, we both have our spiritual practices to do. But here we are sitting um, and just listening, just coming back to open ourselves to this human life that we've been given and to connect in some, some way of being rather than doing. This shift of identity requires a release from the small sense of self, the body of fear, that identity with hopes and fears and so forth. And it can come through practices, through rituals, through initiations. 
sometimes kind of slowly, as you may have noticed. Um, the Buddha said, in fact, for many people, spiritual life deepens the way the ocean goes, um, not to its great depths immediately, but layer by layer off the shore, the waters get deeper and deeper, and so too one engaging in this great spiritual journey will find themselves, over time, discovering a deeper and deeper sense of being and opening in this world. And that kind of initiation, if you will, or that kind of opening, comes when we sit in meditation and there's pain in our body or there's desire or fear or ambition or longing or judgment or joy. Some people have difficulty letting themselves feel joy. And we bow to each of these as they arise. We allow these energies, whatever they be, to come and go and find that still point, that center that can open in the midst of them. So, um, Katagiri Roshi, a wonderful Zen master in uh, Minneapolis, um, once a, a student who'd practiced with him um, uh, went up to him and said, you know, I, I really admire the beautiful qualities of faith and warmth that you radiate in your teachings. This is what we want to learn from you. How do we learn this? And Katagiri Roshi looked back and he said, when people see me today, they don't see the years I spent just being with my teacher. And he described how he practiced year after year, living simply, hearing the same teachings over and over again, sitting every morning no matter what, doing the rituals of the temple, like putting himself in the oven over and over and getting cooked, baked in the process. Or the Christian Desert Fathers, where one of the abbots in the desert 2,000 years ago almost said, the nature of water is yielding and that of stone is hard. Yet, if you fill a bottle with water above the stone so that the water drips drop by drop, it will wear a hole in the stone. In the same way, the spirit is tender, and we, with our fears and our heart, have become hard. So when we follow the words and the ways of truth over and over, gradually our hearts are opened to the greatness of the divine. So that's kind of the willingness to come back again and again when you're afraid or when you're um, uh, confused. When we are, and to sit in the midst of it and say, well, this is confusion, here I am. To rest in the reality of the present with whatever is true. And by seeing what's true, there awakens a whole new capacity of presence. Sometimes, though, this awakening of our own spiritual knowing needs a place for a kind of initiation or rite of passage. And initiation is desperately needed, especially by the youth in our culture, because if initiation isn't offered, then um, uh, they'll seek it in all the dangerous ways that we know. I mean, you get young men coming up and the question is basically, is there anything dangerous to do around here? You know, you got anything interesting to do? And if it's not offered in a conscious way, um, then it's done, you know, in cars at high speed or um, in gangs or all those kind of pseudo-initiations. Um, 
But it's not just them. We all have even reluctant initiations. The initiations of an accident, a near-death experience, or of a messy divorce, or of chemotherapy for cancer. Um, I heard, actually, that the New York State Legislature, some of the um, representatives of the New York State Legislature recently held a whole conference on initiation for the young people in New York because there was so much obvious need for something that wasn't happening um, for these young people. It's in difficult situations where we're tested that we really learn the marrow of spiritual practice so that we're not just nightstand Buddhists, as this fellow talked about. And sometimes initiation comes also through travel. When we spend time in a third world country, um, or it comes through uh, the death of someone we love, or, or our own brush uh, with death. Uh, Geshe Geltsin says, um, all humans, friends, strangers, enemies, those close and those distant, will experience as we do birth, illness, pain, and the fears of loneliness, age, and death. When we experience these consciously, then we can awaken to that which is beyond them. So a, a true rite of passage, which is sometimes called a journey through a canyon that's so narrow you can't take your baggage with you, that you have to go very light, um, involves in some way facing our mortality, a brush with death, a bl- brush with that which is difficult. And my teacher Ajahn Chah um, always asked us to do difficult things. You know, sit up all night in the forest or go out when it was very cold or when it was terribly hot or go be in the caves or whatever was fearful. And we would ask him, why do you do this? And he said, it's for you to find that which is unshakable in your heart, in your spirit, to discover the one who knows that place of wisdom within you. Now, the formal tradition in Asia for this kind of training um, is done as the ordination of a monk or a nun, and it's really an initiation. Um, And I speak of it tonight, um, not so much for you to go to Asia and do that, but because it carries a kind of universal message of wisdom from the ancient ancient world. Um, And so it is that in the tradition of Theravada Buddhism, which is called the the Way of the Elders, the Trishan of the Elders, it had been the case that every young man and many young women in those cultures would go for a period of time into a monastery, shave their head, and go through monastic practice um, when they were at the end of their teenage years, and they weren't considered to be a a ripe member of society, ripe the way a fruit ripens. They were still considered kind of green and useless unless they had gone through this initiation. But once they had done this, then they were considered ripe and ready to be, uh, ready to start a family, ready to really be part of the community. Um, The tradition then would be in the old days that you would go for a year for this training. Then it got shortened to 
half a year or several months and now not not everyone does it but when you go to the monastery um, they don't even always take you in right away and in Japan there's a practice called Tangario if you want to go and do training in a Zen monastery the first thing you have to do is sit outside the gates and if you look at the gates of some of these monasteries, the gateposts are, are in the form of demons. You have to pass through the demons to get into the monastery. And for Tangaria, what it means is you sit out there and you show that you really are ready to uh, follow the discipline and face whatever it takes to awaken a inner freedom. That means in the winter that you sit out in the snow for two, three, four days, or in the summer in the heat for a number of days, and you just sit and wait. And the monks kind of look out the gate to see who's coming, you know, and they'll say, well, there's somebody out there. Got, we got another one out there, right? And they'll kind of watch. Got a live one here, right? And after three or four days or however long, the gate will finally swing open. They'll say, um, what brings you here? And they'll invite you in. So it's not like you go and say, waltz and say, hi, I'd like an initiation, teach me. Um, there has to be, you have to kind of add your genuine um, uh, intention from the first moment to the process. Now, as it was done in the monasteries where I trained, um, there would be a big celebration <laughs> before you went to the monastery. Um, and you would dress as a prince, and you'd wear beautiful um, silk and gold. Um, and then, if you did it in the classiest way, you would be taken by elephant back to the gates of the monastery. Um, Joseph Goldstein, my partner, James Barras, too, actually, they all did this ordination in Bodh Gaya in India, and they all rode on the back of the Mahant's elephant up to the gates of the Mahabodhi temple. I have it on video. It's really a... A, a wonderful video to watch these guys. They don't look like they've done a lot of elephant riding. I mean, they're sort of seasick up there. But anyway. <clears throat> and the reason that you do this is it's a, it's a ritual reenactment of the Buddha leaving the princely life of the world. All the pleasures and delights and, and uh, uh, wonderful things of the palace. Um, the Buddha looked at this whole world and said, this is not where I will find freedom. These things have been fine for me, but to find the freedom of heart that is really liberating, I must release all of these things. And so you go up to the gate, um, and then you take off your gold, and you take off the silk, and you're left there kind of almost naked with just a little loincloth if you're a, a young man, and a, a shaved head. And then the elders open the gates and they take you, if it's a forest monastery, deep into the grove of the forest and there's got to be a minimum of 10 or 20 elders. And they bring you to what's called the Sima, which is the consecrated ground. Sometimes it's a place that has water all around it like a little island. Um, sometimes it's a circle of stones under the largest trees. And in this sacred ground, the elders will have sat in every square yard of it and done a series of prayers and blessings and invocations of the gods and, and uh, the Buddhas and so forth, that things that happen in this sacred ground should really bring the blessings of awakening to ever, whoever enters. And so you enter this consecrated ground. Um, and in a way, uh, any kind of spiritual center um, is in a symbolic way that same consecrated ground. 
Um, I know our center in Massachusetts, in Barry, a uh, retreat center which we've had for more than 25 years now, there are people who've gone and sat retreats there over the years for the last 25 years. And people will come to me and they say, you know, when I think about what is the sacred place for me, it is the meditation room in that center in Barry, Massachusetts. And when I, when I go, even in my mind's eye, back to a holy place, it's that place where I went in 1982 and sat a, you know, a long retreat and really learned the practice of compassion. That's my sacred place. So we find that in our own lives, and the purpose of the sacred place is that the outer remind us of this inner possibility of, re- of refuge, of forgiveness, of honesty. And then you're addressed as you come into practice um, in a very respectful way. O oh, nobly born, O oh, you who are the sons and the daughters of the Buddha. It's a very wonderful kind of um, respect that's offered. You are seen for who you really are, your true nature. O oh, you who are the son and daughter of the Blessed One, who carry the possibility of awakening your own Buddha nature, please come in. And the nobility that they speak of is, as the Buddha said, on this earth only to be found in the nobility of heart and spirit, not by caste or class or skin or race. And there is, um, just as we find the kind of suffering of racism so much in our Western culture, there was also and has been um, a great deal of racism and uh, suffering in the Asian societies in different times in India, for example, um, by caste and class and race. And the Buddha was really adamant about this. He said, it's not the place you're born in the society or the lineage of your parents or the color of your skin or the, the language you know, the refined language of a certain group. He said, nobility is found only in one place, and that is in the spirit and the heart of each human being. So you're bowed to whoever you are, O nobly born. And then you bow back, and you bow to the elders, this kind of respect. Well, in some temples that you go into, Actually, there's some beautiful monasteries in Japan and Tibet. There are these tiny little doors. I've also seen it in mosques. And you know why the doors are so tiny? So you get down. You really have to, you've got to get your, this person who would walk in, here I am, you know, I'm here. Um, You have to bow whoever you are when you enter into this space. The doors are tiny so that your head will go down and in that humility, you are then ready to learn something new. So you bow to the elders, they bow to you, and your bows to them are for what they carry for thousands of years now. The dignity, the lineage of liberation, the teachings of compassion. And they'll question you then. Are you ready to join us? Are you free from debt, from disease? Um, Basically, they didn't want people to come to the monastery who were sick or fleeing some financial obligations. They wanted people who came of their own volition. And they ask, why did you come? What are you seeking? Which is a question for everyone. What do we really seek in spiritual life? 
what are our expectations and what is the sense of possibility. And if you answered, yes, um, I've come of my own volition, I am free to enter, then they will say, um, would you like to take the vows and practices that in the great cycles of birth and death offer you the possibility of liberation, of nirvana, of finding that peace of heart that's possible for every human being. And if you answer them yes, um, then they offer you an ordination. And as I've said before, my own teacher, Ajahn Chah, when I got to the monastery, the, you know, one of the first things he said to me, he said, I hope you're not afraid of suffering. And I said, oh, you know. I came here to learn to be peaceful or whatever I had in my mind. He said, no, 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 there are two kinds of suffering. The kind that most people are involved in, which is running away from the sufferings of life, and it has no end. And the other, which is where you turn and face the sorrows of life and go through them so that you can find that which is beyond the sorrows. And that's our practice here. So you bow and you are asked to commit body, speech, heart, and mind to the practices of the community, to join the brotherhood or sisterhood of the followers of the way, the way of the elders. And then you're given a new name. And the name is really a symbol of your uh, birth into a new phase of your life. And the name is usually given, someone looks at you and they see what Thomas Merton called the secret beauty. They look in your eyes and they look into your heart and they say, ah, I will name you Luminous Virtue. You know, and you know, God, Luminous Virtue, not me, please, right? And they, but they've seen something. And I will name you, you know, the Bearer of Patience, right? Or, the, the, uh, or I will name you uh, He Who Aspires to Peace, right? Um, or, uh, um, or gift of compassion. They'll see you, you know, and say, compassion? I mean, I'm just learning. And they say, this is your name. And so you have something to live up to, of course, in your new life. And then they offer the first meditations. And the very first meditation training that's given um, is the question, the profound spiritual question, who am I? Who is it that was born into this animal body? Who were you before you were born? Who will you be afterward? And you're asked to meditate on this human body, on the elements that make it up, earth, air, fire, and water, um, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, physical senses, um, to really look at this body and say, is this who you are? Is this who I am? And if not, who am I? And to begin to contemplate this question over and over again. In order to do this, the elders will take you and teach first ways to quiet the mind. Calm yourself. They say, follow your breath as we do here in the evenings. And ride the wave of sensation of the breath and let all the other experiences of life rise and fall like waves of the ocean. Joy and sorrow, praise and blame, thoughts and memories, sadness and longing and excitement and love, creativity and disappointment. Let your heart and mind be, be like space 
and all the waves be like clouds that move through it. And begin to study the impermanence, the dreamlike quality, the emptiness of experience, not because it isn't here, it is, but because it's only here for a moment and then it changes and passes away. So they begin to teach you to rest in the eternal present, to rest in that which is timeless and let that which is limited by time rise and pass as it does. The practice of spacious heart. And then from that spacious heart, they move on to the trainings of presence and dignity, how to fold your robe, how to hold your bowl, um, to care for the things of this world. Now that you're, you, the, the mind gets quiet, the heart starts to open, they say, all right, now that you're here, begin to see the preciousness of life. Remember your true purpose and care for each thing that you're given, the robes, the food, the bowl, with great respect, both respect for yourself, inner respect, and outer respect. Moving in the monastery, there's such a sense of dignity in a well-run monastery. Um, and the robes have a kind of symbol there called the, the banner of the Buddha. And in Thailand, there was a, a great uh, period of upheaval in the 1970s and riots in Bangkok from, led by a number of the um, main universities about some... Uh, the, the dictatorship of a, a pretty terrible general at that time. And it went on for, for uh, some weeks in a rather bloody fashion with barricades in the streets. And one day, one of the well-known meditation masters outside of Bangkok with a big forest monastery said, enough of this, we have to do something about it. And he called his hundred or so monks and nuns together and had them dress and carry with their... That bring their outer robes and their bowls, and they went walked into Bangkok, and in the middle of the fighting, they just walked right between the army and the students' lines and got between them and just stood there and did a meditation on loving-kindness. And just seeing the steadiness and the peace and the compassion of these monks and nuns turned the whole energy of that inflamed situation back to sanity. And it was really the, the time when it started from escalating, it started to de-escalate. So there's a tremendous kind of dignity that's given in those cultures for one who wears the robe of a follower of the Buddha. And I remember my teacher Ajahn Chah, when he came to England first, um, and America on one of his first visits, he told the monks who he brought with him, you must go out every day um, for alms food, even in the streets of London with your bowl. Um, and partly it was to teach the English people um, that monks were mendicants and that they could offer food. The first people, you know, some of the first people to offer food were kids. Mm-hmm. You know, they would say, what are you doing? And say, well, this is my bowl and, and uh, monks receive food. And the kids would go back and put a little candy in the bowl or whatever it happened to be, you know. Um, He said, this is one reason, because we can't live as monks without people offering us food, so you must do that, and gradually people will understand that that we offer teachings and in exchange people, if they choose to, can feed us. He said, but there's another very important reason you go out in the streets, and that is in the Buddhist tradition it said there are four great messengers, heavenly messengers of the truth, 
the first which the Buddha saw when he left the palace uh, the first time. The first he saw was um, an old person. He'd never seen someone really old. And he said to his charioteer, who does this happen to? And the charioteer said, well, everyone, if they're lucky, right? <laughs> and then he saw a very sick person kind of wallowing in their vomit and, you know, terribly. I mean, the whole thing, if you've seen somebody really, really sick. Who does this happen to, he said. Oh, said his charioteer, this happens to almost everyone. And then he finally saw a dead body for the first time, a corpse. And you know that moment. Remember that moment when you first saw a human being who had died? And what an impact that has on us. And he said to the charioteer, and to whom does this happen? The charioteer, of course, answered, to all of us. And finally, the fourth of the heavenly messengers that awakened the Buddha, the Buddha to be to want to find liberation in this world was he saw a, a, a yogi, a mendicant, a monk in the distance. He said, who is that wearing those robes? And the charioteer said, that is one who has devoted himself to finding a liberation in these cycles of birth and death, that liberation of the heart that we call enlightenment. So my teacher said to his monks, he said, the reason you have to go out is because you are one of the four heavenly messengers and there could be someone walking down that street in London who has waited a lifetime to see you walk by. It will remind them of what they need to know. So there's these teachings of quieting the mind, calming, of dignity, of really taking care with this life that we're given. Teachings of surrender. One meal a day, going um, in the morning at dawn out for a five or ten mile walk to some village to just receive whatever food is given to you. Sitting up all night, which we did. Um, we did a lot of nights of the sitter's practice where you wouldn't lie down to sleep. Or sitting out in the <clears throat> forest um, at night. Or sitting in the charnel grounds to face death um, when the bodies would be burned. Or to sit and visualize your own aging and death until you could find a fearlessness in the midst of it. Sometimes in group practice, as we do here, and then later on in solitude. And I was sent off to do a retreat for more than a year in silence, um, with just a few interviews with the teacher, but not speaking to anyone else. And when you do a long sitting by yourself, everything comes up. I mean, you know it even if you do a 10-day retreat here. The mind has no pride. It will do anything, right? <laughs> And your loneliness and your fear, you know, and, and uh, your imaginings and your desires and everything that you ever did wrong and every fantasy of pleasure that you ever imagined and can't have at that moment um, uh, and every self-aggrandizement and, you know, kind of inflated thing and every depression you could imagine, they all come. And there you are, just being with each one and you're asked gradually to learn to sit like the Buddha under the tree of enlightenment on the immovable spot in the center of the earth and come to know all that this human realm has to offer, the joys and sorrows, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, and to meet them over and over again with forgiveness, with understanding, with compassion. You're given trainings in loving-kindness meditation, 
trainings in forgiveness. They begin with the story of the Buddha taking Angulimala, who was a, uh, um, a serial killer in the time of the Buddha in India, and bringing him in to the community and forgiving him and training him uh, to become uh, instead a carrier of compassion. This is from an elder in the um, Lakandan community. Let's see if I can find this. Um, where, are, where are we? Oh, yes. One uh, which is down in, um, in outside of San Cristobal de las Casas in, um, in, in Mexico, an old Lacandon medicine man um, offered respect not only to the plants and the creatures of the rainforest, but also to those who've destroyed them as well. This capacity to practice reconciliation by seeing through the eyes of another, whether creature, plant, environmental feature, or human being, is the true spirit of the elder. And so you're given that kind of training to sit with, to bow to, and to offer your compassion to whatever arises. It's really the same training that one encounters going on a meditation retreat here. It's true there aren't the kind of creepy-crawly things of the forest um, or the wild animals and so forth. But if you enter a retreat for the week or ten days or month or two months, we have the two-month retreat here in the winter, you really leave the things of your life uh, behind. And there you are in your little meditation room or sitting in the meditation hall, being silent, and all the things, the stuff of life come, and you're asked to find this quality of presence and dignity in the midst of them all. And you do it over and over again until you feel like you faced your fear, not just once or twice, but enough times that when fear comes you say, oh fear, I know you, oh this is just fear, I've seen you so many times, come in please. Would you like a cup of tea? What story do you have to tell me today? And you do it until somehow you have become that which you admire in the elders, that it's not the elders anymore, but that it's really known to be who we really are. And then you either stay and teach others, or you go back to the marketplace, and you enter the marketplace with bliss-bestowing hands, it says, offering your blessings. When I ended my period in the monastery, it was actually quite difficult. Um, I had so much, it was such a kind of magical time, even though it was difficult to uh, face myself and go through the trainings, but it was also such an inspiring time. And I came back to this country as a monk, as a young man. I wanted to see if I could live in the West as a monk, but it was quite difficult without any monasteries. Finally, when I decided to take off my robes, I looked for a Buddhist temple. I was in in Massachusetts, and um, there was a beautiful Buddhist temple in the Boston Museum of Art that had been taken, all the whole thing, and placed inside. Um, and there were those little kind of red red fuzzy cords that you're not allowed to go in, you can just kind of look in it. And I went to the museum wearing barefoot, wearing my robes and carrying my bowl. And the curator, Mr. Horioka, Horioka-san, 
who was a Buddhist, I said, can I use your temple, please? I have an important ceremony to do. So he opened it up and he sat with me and I did the whole ceremony of releasing the monastic vows and taking lay vows in front of Mr. Horioka. And I wept um, because I was leaving one existence that was uh, so inspiring. But I also knew that it was time to enter into the next stage of my life. Now, I tell this story um, for a few reasons. One is because it's really important that we remember, that we reclaim the place of elders, the value of rites of passage, of initiation. Our culture needs it, our children need it, we need it. And so it's a kind of reminder of that, which something in us already knows. But I don't tell it, as I said in the beginning, with the idea that you have to go to Asia and find the last, you know, most difficult forest monastery at the farthest end of the road where there's still some wild tigers out in the woods and shave your head and get dysentery and go through all of that. Um, I really tell it to touch that longing that is within each of us, that longing for wholeness and integrity um, and to express that truth that we know in us is who we really are because it's a universal journey, you know, and it's not just taken by monks or nuns. I mean, that's one way to do it. There are a thousand different ways. Parenting can be a part of that journey, you know, as an initiation to become a parent. Being a single parent is a, you know, is a, is a serious initiation and a terribly difficult one. And I usually tell parents who have, you know, just gotten, you know, a new child, new parents with little babies, I say, it's like you're going to be on retreat for the next three years. (laughs) Baby retreat. You kind of go underwater and you live with this baby for a few years and then gradually you look around and say, oh, the world, everybody else is still going out at night and doing things. I've forgotten about that world. (laughs) Gary Snyder um, puts it this way. He says... All of us are apprenticed to this, um, with the same teacher that the masters have studied with, reality. It is as hard to get the children herded into the carpool and down the road to the bus as it is to chant sutras in the Buddha hall on a cold morning. One is not better than the other. Each can be quite boring, and they both have the virtuous quality and practice of repetition. And repetition and its good results make the very activities of our life into the path. So it's not that one goes into the monastery. It may be in partnership, in marriage. It may be in the service that you do as a teacher or a nurse or a gardener. It may be uh, working in your community. It may be your startup company. That can provide you with an initiation. Because human life, if we take it as spiritual practice, offers initiation over and over again to us. This is from Toni Marden, the first woman to row solo across the Atlantic Ocean. She said, If you know what it means to be out in the middle of an ocean by yourself, in the dark, scared, then it gives you a feel for what every other human being is going through. I rode an actual ocean. Other people have just as many obstacles go through. 
The ocean is all around us and they're rowing as best as they can. What gives a rite of passage or an initiation its great blessing is that we do it in the spirit of the sacred, that we hold it in a sacred context, that it becomes conscious, that the difficulties we encounter, we ask, what is my lesson? Think of the difficulties that are in your life at this point. What is the lesson that's come to me? That they're used to remind and discover that freedom of heart. Otherwise, they just become a struggle, a burden, kind of getting through it. And it's what's called an incomplete initiation. You do it, but guess what? You have to do it again (laughs) because you haven't really finished it in some way. What makes our life an initiation is that what we do is held in a sacred context and that we're willing to be there and to repeat it again and again, if necessary, in such a conscious way or to use our prayer, our meditation, our disciplines, our rituals, those ways that we know that have been passed on to us by the other elders that we acknowledge to bring ourselves to find compassion in the midst of that circumstance. To step out of the small sense of self and remember what my teacher called the one who knows, the elder in us. And of course, there's really no end to initiation. You know, you can do a great initiation and then the next initiation will come. Um, But gradually, somehow, there comes this shift and we're no longer looking for who knows and who should I follow and where should I go. We discover, as you do, that we can be who we are and that we can love from the person that we are, ourselves and others, and that we can trust this earth I mean, we're here for a purpose, that we can trust this life that we've been given. It turns out that getting enlightened is not so hard. It's staying enlightened that's the problem, right? That we have these moments, we all do, of remembering and awakening. We have all had our initiations in some form or other. But then... What's asked of us as an elder is to be willing to carry that and manifest it and offer it in the world again and again. I don't think we're just nightstand practitioners. I hope not anyway. I mean, I do have some books on my nightstand, as a matter of fact. Um, But I've been sitting in the last couple of weeks with a dear friend who is in the last couple of weeks of her life dying, who's done quite... um, uh, She's had cancer for 12 years and gone in and out of different kinds of treatments and really used it as a practice in an honorable way. and is dying in such a conscious way. Uh, and she said, she said, you know, it is the years of my own meditation practice that's made me realize that I can do this. 
Um, so I share these stories with you because we all can do it. I mean, there are moments when we forget, no doubt. Um, but it's offered to us as human beings to carry the spirit of awakening. It is in you. It really is. It's in us all. So let's sit for a moment. As we sit quietly, as you sit, I'd like to ask a couple of questions for your reflection. What have been the most significant initiations in your life? What is the strength or the understanding or the blessing that's come from that initiation? And lastly, How might you continue to live in that truth, to bring that alive? It's a pleasure to sit together and be together again this week. A few very brief announcements and then we'll do a a chant and ask for some blessings and we'll go out into the evening. First announcement is there's one person, I think her name was Susan, who needs a ride to San Rafael. Can anyone give Susan a ride to San Rafael? All right, she will meet you by that back door there. Um, And there are three people who need a ride to North Berkeley tonight or any BART station. Is there anyone who can give a ride to North Berkeley? All right, they will meet you in um, the back corner directly opposite me, people needing the ride to North Berkeley. Thank you for that. Um, The chant I'd like us to do tonight is a chant of universal compassion from the Sanskrit. It's Om. Mani Padme Hum. 
It means the jewel is in the lotus. Om is the universal sound. Mani is the word for the jewel. Padma, Padme is the word for lotus. And hum is a kind of exclamation. Um, and it's the universal chant of compassion with many translations. One meaning is that the jewel represents the jewel of the mind, when the mind is open and clear. And the lotus represents the heart of compassion. So that when the awakened mind, when our, the clarity of mind rests in the heart, then um, we express a universal compassion. Um, and one of the beautiful things about this chant is that whenever we express it or chant it, um, we join our voices with others. Um, because under the tree in Bodh Gaya, day and night, there are people doing their bows and prostrations. And in the great temples that are left in Tibet or Nepal um, or India, there are people chanting the Mani, Om Mani Padmi Hung, day and night as blessings for the world. Um, it's written on the uh, um, walls of the temples, it's carved in the stones as you go up the paths, it's even the graffiti in the Himalayas, you know, <laughs> spray-painted, Om Mani Padmi Imagine doing graffiti of compassion instead of, you know, the kind of tagging we have here. So when we do it, we really sing together with um, this same chant of compassion for the well-being of every every breathing creature, every creature that moves. And in particular tonight, several people, including Jean, who sits here, who is in hospital after an accident, and Catherine, who is going undergoing treatment for uh, cancer, and Esther, and a number of other people who may be in your heart and mind, who could use your prayers and blessing and compassion. So we'll chant Om Mani Padmi Hung for just a few minutes and then go out into the summer evening. Om Mani Padme Ah. Uh-huh.
May you carry the blessings of your own deepest wisdom and compassion to everyone, every being you meet. Have a good week. Next week I'll be teaching down in Santa Cruz, so uh, Eugene Cash, who's a very wonderful teacher in our community, will do Monday night, and then I'll be back. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.